You may have already picked up on this recurrent theme that has run through some of the songs we've been singing this morning, as well as this text from our gospel reading today, the, the idea of shining light. And this is a theme we're going to be gazing more into throughout the rest of our time today. Um, welcome if you're visiting. We're happy to have you with us. My name is Matt, if I haven't met you. Um, Thanks for joining us on this first Sunday of Lent. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. If you're unfamiliar with this season on the church calendar, the word Lent simply means spring. So that's pretty easy to remember, right? Especially as we are entering that season, I think spring is finally sprung. We'll see, though. This is, though, a 40-day season, 40-day journey that takes us to and properly prepares us for the celebration of the resurrection. So it is, at least in part, a process of repentance, a process of walking with Jesus figuratively on his journey to Jerusalem. Now, we are calling our Lenten series this week, or this year, Journey to the cross, journey to the cross, during which we are going to explore the cross of Jesus Christ, what this event means, and what exactly is accomplished in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it is popular in some circles today to, today to avoid prolonged focus or reflection on the cross because, admittedly, it is uncomfortable. Prolonged reflection on the cross forces us to deal with some issues we often rather not think about. We're going to get into some of those issues in a few weeks, but we want to be intentional in spending a lot of time discussing and meditating on the realities of the cross of Jesus Christ because this is central to our faith. So we want to think about what is accomplished in this horrific event. And why is this horrific image of a cross, why has that become for us the fundamental symbol of our faith? Now, there is no way that we can adequately treat every important issue or every important theme surrounding the cross in six weeks, nor will we be able to exhaust the themes that we do treat, but we want to spend the next month and a half simply focusing our attention on the cross. So we're going to begin that process this week, but we're going to begin in a roundabout way. In fact, most of today, it will probably seem pretty disconnected from the theme of the cross, but I think by the time we get to the end of these scriptures, I, hopefully we will connect the dots and draw these points of uh, connection out. So in the prologue of John's gospel, where John beautifully makes his case that Jesus is God, he echoes the first chapter of Genesis where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John comes along and mirrors that language, but instead says, in the beginning was the word. And who is that word that John refers us to? Well, we know that the word he speaks of is none other than Jesus Christ. With God in the beginning, in fact, John says the word was God. But then if you jump down to verse 14 of that same chapter, we actually find a rather striking claim from John at this point. Actually, two. Verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the first striking claim, but then we get to another one. And we have seen his glory. 
We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says Jesus is God who became flesh and dwells with us. But here's perhaps an even more striking claim. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of of the only Son from the Father. We've seen his glory. I'd invite you this morning to reflect on the glory of God, seen especially in the cross of Jesus Christ, and then what the implications of the glory of God might be for the life of a believer. Now, understanding the glory of God, or even trying to provide a satisfactory definition of glory, is a challenging prospect. It's much easier to define or describe a tangible object. For instance, if I am attempting to describe a guitar to somebody who has never seen a guitar before, I could probably list six to eight standard features or characteristics of a, of a guitar, and then somebody who had never seen one before would probably be able to identify one from a series of photographs or if one was sitting in front of them. Defining a theological concept like glory is a little bit more complex than that. In some ways, I think it's like trying to define or describe Beauty. We, we can identify beauty in an object when we see it, but trying to verbally explain what beauty is is a little bit more challenging. So to begin thinking about the idea of God's glory, I want to back up to Isaiah. Now, this is not where glory first enters the story that we're being told in our scriptures, but I think it might be a helpful place to begin. In Isaiah's vision of the Lord, in Isaiah 6, he says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2 says the seraphim were standing above the Lord. And then in verse 3, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord is holy and the earth is filled with his glory. This is the declaration that Isaiah makes in chapter 6. So how might we understand the glory of God? Because it is a dominant biblical theme that is used to help us understand the nature of the God we serve. But how can we even begin to grasp what it indicates? Well, the Hebrew word that is translated into English as glory simply means importance or heaviness, or weightiness. So when we think of the glory of God, it is connected to God's beauty and might be understood as the importance or the weightiness of God's infinite beauty and utter holiness. God is perfect and altogether different and separate from us. And when that holiness, when that beauty is perceived, the glory of God is on display. The psalmist puts it this way in a well-known psalm, Psalm 19, in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, it's as though through everything in the created order, God is screaming at us, not in anger, but yelling at us, trying to get our attention, I am holy, I am glorious, I am worthy of honor, not in a way that is desperate for our attention or in a way that is needy, but simply out of a desire to draw all human beings into God's own life. 
the heavens declare the glory of God if we could only see it. If we could have our eyes opened to the reality of God's beauty, we could begin to grasp the glory of God. Now, when we think of God's glory as the greatness of God or God's weightiness that is on display or maybe put another way, the perceivable holiness and complete otherness of God, it may seem like a logical next step to assume that an encounter with the glory of God, an encounter with a God who is so completely other than us, would be a terrifying prospect. That it should instill a little bit of dread in us. How could we possibly stand in the same space as a God like that? In fact, this is an idea that we find given expression at various points throughout the Old Testament, especially in a place like Exodus, where this idea of God's glory is first expressed and then it continues to be developed from there. But in Exodus chapter 34, the text we're going to focus on this morning, we see Moses encounter the glory of God in an extraordinary way, but also in a way that instills a little bit of terror in the people. Maybe you remember this story. We'll begin reading in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded... They saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So Moses, after encountering the glory of God, is literally shining. His face is radiating sort of with the residue of an encounter with that glory. Now, If you recall, this is not the first trip Moses made up Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord, to receive the tablets inscribed by the finger of God with the Ten Commandments, to receive the rest of the law. No, a few chapters earlier, Moses made his initial trip up the mountain, but if you recall, he stayed a bit too long on the mountain. His separation from the people of Israel was too much for their comfort. They start to get nervous. We're left alone out here. They start to complain, where is this man who brought us up out of Egypt but has left us here alone in the wilderness, presumably now to die? We thought this man represented our God, but we can't even find him. We certainly can't find his God, so we've got to figure out a secondary plan here. We we cannot stay here in the wilderness alone. We need a God to lead the way. And so they turn to Aaron. They say, Aaron, we need you to make for us gods who will go before us. So they gather all of their gold, their earrings and other jewelry, melt it down and fashion a golden calf to worship 
as the God who brought them out of Egypt. Of course, Yahweh sees everything that is taking place and lets Moses know you might want to head back down there because your people are beginning to lose it. They've crafted a golden calf. They have no direction, no leadership. They're actually in jeopardy of missing out on all of the blessings I have in store for them. So we see Moses plead with God for mercy, and God agrees to have compassion, the text says, on this stiff-necked people. So Moses goes down the mountain, sees everything that has happened. He expresses his frustration by throwing the tablets to the ground. They shatter, but he decides to try this all again, which is where we get to the text we've just read. He goes back up Mount Sinai, meets with God, We are told that God passes in front of him and Moses' face radiates. When he leaves the mountain returning to the people, the people are terrified because they see this man who has met with God, his face is shining, and they assume, well, God must be prepared to smite us through this man because of our sin. We we cannot stay around this guy or we are in danger. And so anytime Moses meets with the people, after meeting with the Lord, we are told that he wears a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't be frightened. Now, one thing we find in this story, we find it elsewhere as well, uh, but one thing we find, especially in this story, is the idea that the glory of God is, in fact, in some sense, observable. From the early expressions of God's glory here in the book of Exodus, whether That glory is appearing as a cloud or smoke or fire or, as the psalmist suggests, creation itself being a visible manifestation of the glory of God. One thing we are told throughout our scriptures is that difficult as it might be to define or describe, the glory of God is, in fact, in some sense, observable. In fact, we find Moses in this situation here in Exodus 33 and 34 making this request to the Lord, saying, God, show me your glory. I need to see it. Show me your glory. I know the people have failed. They really messed up this time, but don't turn away from us. Because if you don't go with us, we cannot continue toward the promised land. We cannot go alone. We need you to go with us. God agrees to accompany them, to stay with them, but Moses doesn't seem to be convinced. He says, I need a little more assurance than just your word that you're going to go with us. Show me your glory. I think this is a fairly common desire among people of faith. If we could just see the glory of God, if we could have some answers or some sense of assurance or if matters surrounding Christian faith were observable and undeniable, Just show me your glory, God, and you'll have my heart. I'll follow you. I'll commit my life to you. I just need something that is objective, something substantial that I can grasp and cling to. Moses seems to need a bit of that assurance in this story. Asks God, God, show me your glory, and God responds, okay, I'll show you my glory, but not completely. I'll show you a little bit of my glory, but I can't show you at all because it's not safe for you to see my face. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. and 
I'm going to pass you by, but before I do, I'm going to cover you with my hands so that you don't see my face. After I have passed you by, I'll remove my hand and you can see my back. But that's as close to gazing into the glory of God as you can get because it's not safe for you to see my face. You, you can't look at the face of God and live. But then we jump to the New Testament. And we see the Apostle Paul come along and say, but that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. God has revealed his glory. We can gaze into the face of God as we see the suffering face of Christ. We see the glory. We see the weightiness, the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to jump back to chapter 3 in a moment, but we'll begin in chapter 4. We read this in verse 5. Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let sh light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So however difficult it might be to define glory, however scary it might be to think of an encounter with a God who is holy, we see that glory, we encounter that glory in Jesus of Nazareth. Exodus tells us that you can't see the face of God and live. John comes along and says, but now, in Christ, that's exactly what we see. We see the glory of God. Paul says God has shown in our hearts to give us knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we see the face of Jesus, as we walk with Jesus on this figurative journey to Jerusalem during Lent, as we look into the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. When we see the face of Jesus, we see the glory of God on full display and its splendor in a way never before imaginable. Now, if we back up a chapter to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we see the Apostle Paul address this very situation from Exodus chapter 34, the concept of the glory of God in relation to Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 12, we read this. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul seems here to agree, at least in part, with what we have read in Exodus. If we continue down the path humanity was headed during Moses' time, you cannot see the glory of God. 
We cannot see the face of God by looking at the law, at least not completely. We can see shadows. We get glimpses, but it's never a complete picture of the glory of God. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, and when you turn to the Lord, Paul says, you see the glory of God. He goes on to say that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In other words, if you look at Jesus and see the glory of God, there is freedom to begin seeing reality as it truly is because the light of the glory of God begins to illuminate everything around you. You're no longer in the dark. The veil has been removed. When you come to the Lord, we begin to see. Paul says, with unveiled faces, we see the true glory of the Lord. When we behold him, we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the other. So not only in Jesus do we get to gaze directly into the glory of God, but we even get to be transformed into that glory. Because in beholding or in gazing at the glory of God in the suffering face of Jesus, we are changed. We never just look and see as an end in and of itself. We are not just spiritual observers or consumers of spiritual content that even look to the love and the the gospel of Jesus Christ, but really just to meet that internal spiritual need that we happen to feel in the moment or to get our spiritual fix so we can go about our business. As we gaze into the face of Jesus, As we come into the contact with the glory of God in Jesus Christ, it always leads to transformation. And I think this is where the message of the transfiguration of Jesus from our gospel reading today, coupled with what we've read from Exodus chapter 34 and 2 Corinthians, is a perfect launch pad for our series during the Lenten season. What we are calling Journey to the Cross. Because Lent, again, is in part a process of repentance, a process of intentionally putting ourselves at the feet of Jesus, walking with him figuratively on his way to Jerusalem. And as we spend time at the feet of Jesus, as we spend time gazing into the face of Christ with a heart and in a posture of repentance, transformation begins to take place. It just does. As we gaze at the suffering face of Christ, we paradoxically see the glory of God and we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so maybe the question for us at this point is, well, what does the cross have to do with the glory of God? What does a horrific, shameful event like a crucifixion have to do with glory or beauty or importance? In fact, in a couple of weeks, we are going to be taking a deep look at the shame of the cross, the horrific nature of the cross, and what that means for us as followers of Jesus. But how can Jesus on the cross be the same glorious God that we have talked about today? Well, as theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar has famously said in His wonderful work, Love Alone is Credible. He said, being disguised 
under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. The clearest revelation of who God is, a clear revelation of the glory of God in the suffering Jesus. At the feet of Jesus, as we gaze into his face, we begin to see reality as it truly is. We begin to see ourselves as we truly are, and that's when we are opened up to the possibility of transformation. Because in Jesus, the veil that clouds our vision, in Jesus, the veil that clouds our judgment is removed, and we begin to live as we were intended to live. Perhaps we could liken it to trying to get ready for work in the dark. Maybe you have to get up really early, and one morning you discover that your electricity isn't functioning properly, but you still have to look presentable for work, right? So you light a candle in your bathroom, and you attempt to do your best, and you think you look presentable, but it's only when you leave the house, get into your car, and back out of the garage, and when you have the benefit of direct sunlight, you begin to notice that you weren't seen clearly at all in that dimly lit bathroom. Because the light from the sun illuminates everything and you can see more detail than you ever could have hoped to see in your bathroom. I know it's a weird analogy, but <laughs> similarly, when we come to Jesus, when we look into the face of Christ, we see the glory of God and that glory illumines everything around us. As we see the glory of God, especially in the cross of Jesus Christ, we begin to see everything else in our lives in a new light, especially ourselves, and we begin to change. The glory of God that is expressed in the crucifixion of Jesus is intricately connected to the dignity of humankind. Our dignity as human beings is found in the fact that we are image bearers of God and we have the capacity to grow into that image from one degree of glory to another. I love how Irenaeus put it. And Kevin, if you all want to come up. I think this is a great way to sum up all of these thoughts to wrap this up this morning. Irenaeus was an early church father from the second century, and I think in a lot of ways mirroring what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he suggested this. He said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. The glory of God is a man fully alive. So I'd just like to leave us with these questions as we reflect upon these texts we've considered this morning. Are you seeing the glory of God are you aware that you're seeing the glory of God? Do you, do you desire to see God's glory? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. As our gospel reading today encouraged us, listen to him. This is my son, listen to him. This is what we were made for to see and to experience the beauty and glory of God and to allow that encounter to transform us. Would you stand this morning as we prepare to share in the Eucharist? We're going to form two lines down the center aisle. There will be somebody here to provide the elements for you. We'll speak these words over you. The, 
the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take those elements on your own. We invite you to participate in this celebration with us. As we're coming forward for communion, we're going to be singing a song, Rock of Ages. The opening line of that song, what does it say? Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That is our prayer this morning, that we would hide ourselves in the cleft that is the rock of ages, not to keep us from seeing the glory of God like Moses was put in the cleft of the rock so that he would be protected from seeing the face of God. Our prayer is that as we hide ourselves in the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, that we would see completely the glory of God revealed in Jesus. Let's pray and then I'll invite you to come. I invite you to say this prayer along with me. O oh God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?